Our scripture lesson is taken from Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, and uh, reading through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, 18, which is page 1301, 1301 in the Pew Bible. Romans 8.18 For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we wait, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart and knows what what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, him whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, it is, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separ- separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless to us the reading of his word. In conjunction with it, I'd like to read to you from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10, on page 876 in the back of the Psalter Hymnal. Page 876, Lord's Day 10, the top of the second column. What do you understand by the providence of God? 
Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. Beloved of the Lord, the Apostle Paul confidently asserts that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in life, nothing in death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's pretty confident, isn't he? Confident that you are safe in God's love. Where does he derive that confidence from? Well, in part, from his knowledge of the, of the doctrine of providence. He knows that God is in control, that all things come to us from his fatherly hand. And because of that, he has this confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So we want to consider this uh, teaching of providence, the biblical teaching of providence, considering uh, what it is, then secondly, the problem of providence, and by problem I don't mean that uh, it's problematic from God's perspective, there's no problem from God's perspective, it's uh, our problem that we have uh, trying to get our minds around this and accepting the truth of this teaching, and then when we do get our minds around it, uh, the comfort that it can derive uh, that it can give to us. First of all, what is this teaching of providence? Well, the teaching of providence has two basic parts to it. God upholds all things, and God rules all things. God upholds all things, and God rules all things. When we say God upholds all things, we mean He, he preserves everything. He, he keeps everything going. Nothing is uh, transpiring in this world under its own steam, under its own authority. Uh, the momentum of the universe is not what keeps it going. Certainly God uses secondary causes to keep things moving. He uses things like the laws of nature, we sometimes call them, uh, the law of gravity. But those things are only operative because he keeps them operative and he can he can suspend them at any time like he did when he walked on water or when he rose on the clouds uh, into heaven at his ascension. Uh, he's not bound by these things. They don't exist apart from him, independent of him. They are tools in his, in his hands that he uses to keep things going. Uh, the world is, uh, is not uh, like a, a clock that a, 
a, watch, a clockmaker uh, uh, makes and then winds up and puts on a shelf and lets it wind down under its own authority or its own power. No, God upholds all things. We read of that, for example, in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. When I first began to uh, meditate on Hebrews 1, verse 3, many years ago, I I thought they, the wording was backwards. It should be uh, by the power of his word that uh, the, his power, uh, instead of the word of his power, it should be the power of his word uh, because uh, his word is powerful. But uh, the more I meditated on and consulted others, I thought, no, it's right. It is the word of his power. The word is the instrument of his power. His word is primary. His word governs. His word determines everything. And uh, through his word, uh, his power goes forth. Just like uh, we read at the beginning of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Uh, Gospel is uh, the word of God, and it is the instrument of his power that he uses to change your heart and my heart and uh, the hearts of sinners to bring us to faith in Christ. Paul, writing to the uh, Corinthians, also speaks of uh, the upholding uh, work of God. He says, uh, in him all things hold together. In, th- in him all things hold together. So God is very much involved in this world right now. He's not uh, far off on a journey, uh, occupied with other things. Uh, every moment of every day, our lives continue because he is at work upholding all things. But he's not just keeping things going. He's keeping things going in his direction because not only does he uphold all things, he also rules all things. God has a plan, a plan for the history of the world, a plan for the history of the world that is unfolding day by day, moment by moment. Paul writing in Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has this will, this plan, and and he's working on it. He's working it out. He's making everything happen. That includes uh, things that we may maybe don't like. <laughs> we read Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light, uh, and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. God's saying, I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. This pandemic is not caught God by surprise. He knows all about it. He planned it. He planned it long ago. He's the one who works calamities in the earth. You have the same thing in Psalm 46. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. What's a desolation? Well, to make desolate is to lay waste, to cause people to be appalled and horrified. Come see the desolations he has brought on the earth. I create light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. He is 
the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He controls all the rulers of the earth. They are all in his hand. We could sum up the providence of God, his sustaining all things and ruling all things with the words of Acts 17, Paul's sermon, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. He does both upholding and ruling by his almighty and everywhere present power. God's power is really the only power there is in the universe. Any power that you and I have, any power that any machine produces, any power that any planet might have in terms of gravitational power, it's all His power. He created it all. It's all an expression of something that that He's done and He is doing. He created it, and now He sustains it and governs it. The result is that nothing comes to us by chance but by His fatherly hand. You know, His power is said to be everywhere present. There was a Syrian king named Ben-Hadad that had to learn that lesson the hard way. He went up against the northern tribes in battle and he lost. And his counselors said, well, of course we lost. We fought them on the hills and their, their God is a God of the hills. But if we fight them on the plains, then, uh, then we'll, we'll win because their God is not a God of the plains. So Ben-Hadad came back the next year and fought Israel on the plains. And he lost again because God's power is everywhere present. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23, we hear God saying, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Those are rhetorical questions, the answer of which is obvious. He is not only a God at hand, he is also a God far off. And no one can hide himself in secret places so that... God can't see you. He fills heaven and earth. He is everywhere. And therefore, whatever happens, happens by His fatherly hand. All the days of your life are numbered before they began, says Psalm 139, verse 16. It's a tragedy that there are people dying from the COVID virus. A tragedy that others are grievously ill, but this doesn't take God by surprise. He knows the day of our birth. He knows the day of our death because he has determined it. And he has determined that some people are going to die from the COVID virus. That's all part of his plan. Sparrows can't die apart from his will. All the hairs of your head are numbered your wife's work, your family, your joys, your sorrow, they're all part of his plan. From God's perspective, there's no such thing as luck or chance or accidents. I had a grandmother that uh, thought it was uh, wrong ever to use the word accident because she believed so firmly in the providence of God. I don't know that I would make that same judgment that it's wrong to use words like chance or uh, accident as long as what you mean by that it's 
that it's something happened that you did not foresee and that you did not plan and that you had uh, no reason to cause to happen. Uh, it was something that uh, God did. But uh, from his perspective, indeed, there is no chance, no accident. All comes to us by his fatherly hand. Now, that's, that's a summary of the biblical teaching of providence. God upholds all things. He rules all things by his everywhere present power. Now, when that is taught, <laughs> invariably, there are people who say, well, if that's the case, then God has a lot to answer for. Yes, that's the problem of providence. There is this thing that we, we look at the world and we see what's happening and we think that we know better than God. Everyone's life has a great many sorrows and griefs and not little ones. We can understand why unbelievers suffer because promise, God promises them no blessing. But, but what about Christians? Aren't they supposed to be the blessed of God? Well, even Psalm 34, verse 15 says, The righteous man may have many trials. And Jesus said, In this world you will have tribulation. And Peter says, Now you have to suffer grief through all kinds of trials. And a little later he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you. Job was blameless before God. He lost all his wealth. He lost all his children. He suffered painful sores and sickness. He lost the support of his wife and friends. He uttered that memorable line, Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. You've never seen a fire that there weren't sparks flying up. It always happens with fire, and it always happens with human life that trouble comes. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. And the unbeliever thinks that, that he can put God on trial and say, God, when I see you, you're going to have to answer to me for what you did. And the Christian is not so blatant and blasphemous, but the Christian too wonders, what is God doing? Why all the trials? Why all the suffering? Well, one thing that we ought not to say, but sadly is being said, and is being said in, in many churches, one thing we ought not to say is that God, God's not in control. God has nothing to do with that. God is taken by surprise when bad things happen. Yes, this is being taught in some churches. It has a name. It's called open theism. Open theism. And it has the idea that theism referring to God and open meaning the future is open even to God. God doesn't know the future. And when bad things happen, they, they catch God by surprise. I was listening to a, a debate. One of our ministers uh, debated another minister on a subject from Genesis chapter 1. And the other uh, minister was uh, taking the position that uh, evil is the logical necessity for the existence of good. You can't have 
goodness unless there is something that isn't good to, to measure it against. And so you have to have evil. So he was basically saying evil is equally ultimate with God. Well, the, there's a Far Eastern religion that talks about the yin and the yang, you know, and that, that symbol with the S in the middle, it shows the, the dark side and the light side fighting against each other. And uh, that's, that's Near Eastern mysticism, that evil and, and good are equally ultimate and equally eternal. Sometimes uh, the light side is, gains the upper hand. Sometimes the dark side gains the upper hand. But uh, it goes on forever. And this, this teaching was not coming from uh, the minister from our denomination, but from the, the one that he was debating uh, from, I don't know what denomination the other minister was from, but he claimed to believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, but yet he believed that, that evil was equally ultimate with God. And it's that kind of thinking that says, you know, bad things happen and God has nothing to do with it. Well, that's really a, a rather discouraging theology because if that's the case, then what what good is God? <laughs> you know, it, it reduces God to a cosmic cheerleader who says, uh, I believe in you people. You should believe in yourselves and, and you can do it if you try. You know, just keep on plugging away and, and uh, I hope things turn out well for you. <laughs> Some good a heavenly cheerleader is. He can't promise anything because he's not in complete control. A God who is not completely and utterly sovereign is, not, is a God who can't help us. We have to recognize that God indeed is in control and that he promises that all things will work together for good and he's able to keep that promise because... He is indeed in complete control of all things. The problem is, of course, with that, that statement, all things work together for good, is what's good? God has one idea of goodness, and we have another idea of goodness. And, and we think that God ought to conform to our idea of goodness. But think about that for a moment. That, that takes us back right to the very dawn of human history. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what Satan whispered to Eve when Adam was with her. You can be like God. You can determine good and evil for yourself. You don't have to be dependent upon God to determine good and evil. You can determine what's good, what what you think is right and just. And We must be careful not to fall into that trap of trying to say to God, God, I know better than you do what good is. We must learn what good is from God. You know, there are many examples in Scripture of people undergoing very difficult and hard times where ultimately good, even good that we can recognize, transpired. Think of the life of Joseph. Joseph who was hated by his Ten older brothers who were jealous of him because of his dreams and who persecuted him. And when he came to his brothers, his brothers received him not, but, but put a sentence of death on him and cast him into a grave. But he rose from that grave and he ascended to the throne of Egypt, but not after serving 13 years as a slave and a prisoner in Egypt. 
And then, even as the viceroy or the prime minister of Egypt uh, for another 14 years, he was deprived of the company and the solace of seeing his father and his family again. For 27 years, he was an alien, an outcast, a stranger in a strange land. The first 13 of it as a slave and then as a prisoner. That was a tough life. But what happened? Well, he became the means through which his family was saved from a famine. God used him to save the lives of his brothers and their children and grandchildren and and many others. He became the Savior of the world. And his life also became a picture of, of Christ who came unto his own and his own received him not. And they sentenced him to death and put him in a grave. But from that grave he rose to a throne from where he now dispenses gifts, especially the gift of salvation to all who believe. You know, great good came from that. And then there are stories in the Bible where all sorts of strange coincidences happen and things happen seemingly by chance, but somehow they all work in a way that brings about the salvation of God's people. Think of the story of of Esther. Esther, who was just this Jewish girl in a in a foreign land, an exile, a, one of the prisoners taken to to Babylon and uh, or taken to a foreign country, and uh, the king got unhappy with his wife and and uh, dethroned her from being queen and looked for another wife, and lo and behold, this Jewish girl comes and. Then uh, the prime minister of the country, he takes a dislike to the Jews because, well, old pig-headed Mordecai refuses to honor the prime minister of the country, and Mordecai or uh, Haman finds out it's because Mordecai is a Jew, and so he hates the Jews and plots against them and decides to ask the king for Mordecai's life, and the very night that he goes to ask for Mordecai's life, well, lo and behold, what had happened, just happened? Somebody read the record of how Mordecai had saved the king's life on one occasion and never been rewarded. And so Haman gets to reward Mordecai on the night he wanted to kill Mordecai. And Haman had cast lots for a date on which all the enemies of the Jews could put them to death. They were a persecuted minority in, in that country. And uh, they were hated by many people. Uh, it wasn't just uh, Haman who hated Mordecai, but uh, many of the Jews were hated by their fellow countrymen. And it was supposed to be a day when all, when all the Jews could be gotten rid of. But it was a day when the fear of the Jews fell upon all the people and the Jews got rid of their enemies. And it was because of people like Mordecai and and people like Daniel that... Several hundred years later, in the time of the apostles, wherever the apostles went, there were God-fearing Gentiles because the fame of God had spread through people like Daniel and through people like Mordecai and Esther. They're, they're what, what they did uh, gave God a good name and uh, brought the fear of God upon many of the Gentile peoples of the ancient world. And, and therefore, when the gospel was proclaimed, there were these God-fearing Gentiles throughout uh, many places who uh, were ready to hear the gospel. They knew already the gospel promises from the Old Testament because God had worked it all together through that strange events of the Babylonian captivity and so forth. 
There's the story of, of Paul and his uh, training as Saul of Tarsus in the, from, the, from the great rabbis of the Jewish tradition in his day. And he was supposed to be a great Pharisee and a great teacher in Israel, but God used him instead to become one of the great apostles uh, who wrote this magnificent uh, theological treatise, the Book of Romans and all his letters that uh, deal with the problems in the church that still are problems that need to be addressed today. God uh, took this man who was a persecutor of the church and who was complicit in the murder of uh, Deacon Stephen because he he was uh, a complicit bystander helping the people who threw the stones by taking care of their coats. And God said, uh, even a murderer uh, is not beyond my grace. And Paul could later say, I, the chief of sinners, was saved. And if if God can save one like me, he can save you as well. God is working through all kinds, of, all kinds of difficult circumstances to bring about salvation, to bring about the greater good, the worst crime, the worst crime ever committed in human history, the murder of the innocent Son of God is the means of your salvation and mine, the means of, of renewing the whole world, the whole creation, is brought about because of what what happened when the hands of wicked men put him to death. God works all things together for good. We need to uh, remember that God's good is much greater and bigger than our good. Consider the many assurances that we are given in Scripture. Romans 5, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. Peter says, now you have to suffer grief. Why? So that your faith may be purified and bring praise to Jesus. James says, count it all joy when you suffer various trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance and maturity and and wholeness. Hebrews 12 says, All discipline is painful to bear, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are you when men revile you and speak ill of you. Why? Because the Spirit of glory rests on you. 2 Corinthians 4, Affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And therefore we know that indeed... God is working for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know that he loves us. And because we know that he loves us, we need to trust him. In the difficult times, we need to trust him. And when we do, then we can appreciate the comfort that this doctrine brings. And what is the comfort of the doctrine of providence? Patience in adversity, thankfulness in prosperity, and with regard to the future, we always have hope. Patience in adversity. Not anger, not rage, but learning to submit. Think again of Joseph, 13 years a slave, a prisoner. What did he do? He worked, he worked hard. And when he became prime minister, what did he do? He worked. He worked hard. He had those dreams. He never forgot those dreams. He knew that God had something special in his future. 
He didn't gripe. He didn't complain. He humbled himself under God's mighty hand. He did whatever work was at hand to do and waited patiently for the fulfillment of his dreams when God would bring good things again. Patience in adversity. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. In due time, he will build you up. Thankfulness in prosperity. You know, as tough as we have it now, and things are tough, these are tough times, (laughs) we still have it pretty good. We're still pretty well off. Every one of you has a a roof over your head. You know, we can uh, look in in the Scripture and see that in Acts chapter 8, a great persecution broke out against all the Christians in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered except for the apostles. You know, when, when people are scattered before persecu- by persecution, they don't have time to pack a U-Haul trailer or a donkey cart or whatever it was that they carried their goods on. If you're, if you're fleeing persecution, you're running. And all the Christians had to run. Compare that lifestyle with the lifestyle you and I have now, you know, where when we get sick, there are doctors, there are treatments, there, there's medicine, there's hospitals, and, and there's always a warm uh, furnace uh, in the house to heat the house on cold nights and air conditioners to keep us cool on hot days, and we drive around in nice cars. We have it pretty good. And because we have it pretty good, we're like the Israelites who when they entered the land of Canaan with houses already built and wells already dug and every man under his own vine and under his own fig tree. What did Nehemiah pray in Nehemiah 9? We grew fat and we forgot God. You know, when I uh, moved, when my wife and I moved to Norlandia in 2008, I I got to know a man there uh, soon after moving and He'd lived over he'd lived over 80 years in Nerlandia, and uh, so I asked him one time. I said, "How has Nerlandia changed in your lifetime?" And he said, "I can sum it up in one word: money." He says, "When I was a boy, nobody had any. (laughs) Nobody had any money. Now, everybody has too much." And that's, that's true of most immigrant communities, not just Dutch immigrant communities, almost any, any immigrant community. The first generation, they suffer a lot of deprivation. They have uh, a lot of hardship and they work very hard. The next generation, they, they reap some of the benefits of the hard work of the, of the first generation. And the third generation, they're, they're born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And that's most of us. Third, fourth, fifth generation. <laughs> Uh, we have it pretty well. And we're, we're like the Israelites. We tend to, to grow fat and forget God instead of, of constantly remembering that we don't have anything except from His hand. All the good things that you have are the gift of His grace. And you ought to be profoundly humble and thankful. But when life is tough, when the, the difficult times do come, And we don't lose hope because we have a hope. We have a living hope. We have the new heavens and the new earth. We have that that bliss that awaits us, the beatific vision, the the blessed vision of, of when Christ shall come upon the clouds with great glory 
and usher in the fullness of our inheritance, that inheritance which is stored up for us now, but will be revealed when He comes again, when everything will be made perfect and new, and we will be with Him in glory. We have that glorious hope, even in the worst of times in this world. May God bless us with the knowledge of providence. John Calvin said, The knowledge of providence is the greatest happiness, and ignorance of it the greatest misery. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this teaching of your word that reminds us to be patient in adversity, to be thankful in prosperity, and to always have hope for the future. We pray that we may humble ourselves under your mighty hand in times of difficulty, knowing that in due time you will lift us up. Assure us of your love, because we know that Christ loved us and gave his life for us. May we see your love at the cross and never doubt that you will continue to love us and care for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.